This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is Coronacast, a daily podcast all about the coronavirus. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan. It's Thursday the 18th of November 2021. And I said it's all about the coronavirus, but we like other viruses as well. Normally we take a keen interest in viruses of all types. And every couple of weeks, I feel like I notice it more now than I did before the pandemic. They were probably there before the pandemic as well. But there's these headlines saying avian influenza outbreak in this area of, say, China, or there's some sort of the scary headlines about outbreaks of influenza that could be the next pandemic. And There's been some of those recently. There's been some outbreaks in China and Korea recently. They're often to do with poultry farms. So I think today it would be good for us to give our audience who are sick and tired of this pandemic, don't really want to go straight into another one, some context around how how much of a risk this is and uh, just how worried they should be when they see these things popping up in their news feeds. Influenza is the one that people have always been worried about, although we've been mugged by this coronavirus because that was the other virus people were expecting. So influenza starts in animals. Largely, it's a bird virus, but it can spread to pigs as well, so-called swine flu. And just to give you an idea of the factory for influenza around the world, there are 25 billion chickens on farms around the world, and there are nearly 700 million pigs, 50% of which are in China. And they're farmed by human beings. And little birdies fly over them and poop on them. So you get this circulation of virus through these confined bird populations, which are, if you like, um, the cruise ships for influenza. And then they can go jump into humans, they can go back into animals, they can go into pigs. You get lots of exchange of viral material. So this year, there's been 21 human infections in China with a, a subtype of bird flu called H5N6. And there have been some deaths as well. The problem with some of these bird flu viruses is that when they get into humans, they can have a very high mortality rate. But they don't usually transmit easily between humans. That's the key. So when you start to see human-to-human spread is the worry. Now, most of the spread that's reported are chicken farmers are people who actually come in contact with the birds and they've caught it directly from the birds. You maybe get the occasional spread human to human, but not many. And that's what's saving us at the moment from a pandemic or a really bad outbreak. But various viruses are circulating around the world. They have a global surveillance system where they report on animal infections because if you pick up the virus in animals, you can then track it to humans. So there are many reports of outbreaks amongst animals, particularly amongst poultry. And you can get vast numbers of poultry slaughtered because they don't want the virus to spread. So there's been an outbreak in South Korea, H1N1 still circulating. There's another one called H5N8. These are all the labels that you give the different types of the, of the virus. So far, none of these show pandemic potential because, as you quite rightly say, Tegan, what you're looking for is human to human although 21 human infections in the H5N6 in China is a bit worrying. What's a typical year look like? I don't have that number to hand, um, but it's, you know, these, that number of infections is more than the whole of 2020. And that was a report, I think, up until about September of this year was the, these 21 human infections. So it's more than the year before. But it's still not astronomic. But that's, that's how sensitively they're watching this situation. So um, you can have a Good night's sleep tonight. 
But, you know, tomorrow night, well, just listen to CoronaCast and you find out. <laughs> so, yeah, on one hand, good news is people are watching it really closely. Bad news is it's not not a worry. That's right. And particularly if one of these very high mortality viruses escapes and finds a gene which allows it to spread from humans to humans, that is the concern. Other good news is that they've released the viral pattern, the, the quadrivalent vaccine, the four viruses that go into the Southern Hemisphere vaccine and you know, that will come on stream early next year. So talking about vaccines, coming back to coronavirus vaccines with COVID vaccines, there's been some questions that we've had about an article that was published recently in the British Medical Journal. I want to talk to you about it today, Norman, because it's not a peer-reviewed research paper, which is the bread and butter of the BMJ, but it's a news piece by an investigative journalist there. And basically the story is that there's someone who worked at a site that was involved in the Pfizer's phase three clinical trials of its vaccine making allegations that perhaps not everything was carried out absolutely perfectly there. I just want to have a talk about what this report contained and then also help put it into context a bit for the average person about just whether or not that should undermine the trust that we have in this vaccine that's been given out to literally billions of people worldwide since then. So this was an American journalist, as you say, and a whistleblower came to him from a company called Ventavia. Most pharmaceutical companies and it may surprise people to realize this, don't do their own clinical trials. They actually farm out the whole process of clinical trials to companies, and sometimes they're very large companies that do that. They recruit the patients, they do the ethics approvals, they, go, they take it through regulatory approval, they do the data monitoring and so on. It's a complex process and it's done by these companies. Pfizer partnered with a very large company and because of the speed of this, they have farmed it out to other companies around the world and the United States to do parts of the trial. So, so it's a complicated process, an umbrella company doing the work for Pfizer and contracting it out. So this is a problem with a company called Ventavia, or an alleged problem with the vaccine trial recruitment and con conduct in Texas. And the whistleblower is uh, somebody who is working in that company the company maintains this person was not working in that trial and was only at the company for two weeks. What this whistleblower did to the journalist was give a whole series of internal documents that suggested that they were not monitoring and conducting the trial with the effectiveness and efficiency that you would expect. And he also claims there are two other whistleblowers who support that. It's about data monitoring, it's about following up on adverse effect events, and just a degree of messiness about how they were conducting the trial. Now, this is a trial of 40-odd thousand people. Probably this relates to about a thousand, maximum 4,000 of the 40-odd thousand people in the trial. It's controversial because the journalist did not go to Pfizer or Ventavia, the uh, commission company, before the article was published in the British Medical Journal. When you and I spoke to him, Tegan, he didn't have a good answer as to why he didn't. And certainly we've gone to Pfizer and Ventavia about this case. They've not made a lot of comment about it, but they've basically said what I've just said is that the person who was a whistleblower didn't work on the trial. They're not necessarily denying all the things that were alleged. In fact, Ventavia implied that there may have been problems, but they reported them and they implied that they've dealt with them. And so it's just not entirely clear where it's at. There, you know, the fact that there's documentation suggests that the allegations are real. But the question is, does it undermine the whole trial? 
and that's unlikely given that it was a small, a relatively small percentage of the participants in the trial, and it's not clear what percentage of those participants relate to these problems. But nonetheless, it is an issue that needs to be followed up, and the suggestion is that the Food and Drug Administration does not audit trials to the extent that it should because of underfunding. I'll make a personal comment here, just because I've been following scientific fraud and manipulation of data for many, many years, is that the history of this kind of problem in clinical trials the biggest group of whistleblowers have actually been the pharmaceutical companies themselves when they've uncovered problems. Why would they want to blow the whistle on their own trials? Because the commercial risk to them of having incomplete or wrong data in their trials is huge. So they could, they could go to market with a drug and if there are unstable or unreliable data in there, they could lose hundreds of millions of dollars and suffer serious reputational damage. So there's been many instances where, for example, doctors have forged, because they get paid for patients to be in clinical trials, and they've forged that data. The pharmaceutical companies being the one that's dobbed them in. Um, they haven't covered it up. Some things don't add up here. Nonetheless, if there is documentation, there is something to, be, to respond to. But the, impl- the impression we get, at least from the response we've had from Ventavia, also in the article itself, it admits that Icon, the company that Pfizer was partnering with, also took action. So it's just unclear what action's been taken and uh, the net result of this episode. But I think that transparency should win out and we should just hear what exactly happened from the point of view of the companies. Yeah. And when I was reflecting on this, because I'm sort of going, okay, if I'm a person who had the Pfizer vaccine, which I am, or I was considering to have it, you know, how much does this weigh on that decision? And I thought, well, the vaccine has since, since this thing has been given to billions of people around the world. The real world data is playing out to show that it's very effective. Absolutely, we want transparency and we want these things to be watertight when they're being studied. But in the context of this particular vaccine, it doesn't seem to... The, the real world data seems to, to bear out what was found in the clinical trials. Yes, but nonetheless, and your comment is right, is that for regulatory approval, when it goes to the FDA, when it goes to the TGA, you want the data to be squeaky clean. And that, that's so before it gets out there. So we, we did speak to the journalist in question. We have sought responses from the American Food and Drug Administration, Pfizer and Ventavia, the organisation in question. We can put those statements on our Coronacast website, which is also the place where you can ask us questions and leave comments if you want to. It's abc.net.au slash coronacast. And we'll see you tomorrow. See you then. <laughs>